The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Intuitive Connection, where spirituality and psychology meet to help you be your best and brightest self. I'm your host, Victoria Shaw, and in each episode, I'll help you to awaken your own inner wisdom, step into your power, and live a more divinely inspired life. You're here to let your inner light shine. Are you ready? Let's do this. Hello, and welcome to Intuitive Connection. Today, we have a special guest who is here to share with us about a topic that is near and dear to my heart and one that I've been looking for a really long time to find just the right guest. And I think that we have found her today in Alyssa Rumsey. Did I say your name right? You did. You did. Thank you. Awesome. And Alyssa Rumsey. And Alyssa is a registered dietitian and a certified intuitive eating counselor. And she's here to talk to us about how we can use our intuition into the natural uh, intuition of our body in order to have a healthier relationship with food, with eating, with exercise, and really, I think, with our embodied selves. So Alyssa, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yay. And Alyssa, I think I told you that it's been a journey to find someone to come and talk about this topic, because I think that unfortunately, diet culture is just so pervasive. And that attitude, which I think is the antithesis of intuition, right, where we try to master our body and control things is just so, so pervasive. And body shaming is so pervasive that I interviewed some people that, you know, said, hey, we're intuitive eating counselors. And, you know, as I talked to them a little bit more, I realized they really weren't. And so I'm excited to have you here today to share a little bit about what intuitive eating is and a little bit about your story and how you got to be doing what you do. Yeah, great. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, I mean, fortunately, intuitive eating has become more of a buzzword and people are more familiar with it. But whenever that happens, like you said, it kind of gets co-opted a bit or kind of taken still through this diet mentality framework. So yeah, I'm happy to be here and share some insight. And I think with that diet mentality framework too, and I'm interested to hear what you think, but I think so many of us have grown up with so many messages from family members, from friends, from doctors, from the popular media, you know, it conspires against intuitive eating and it, it conspires against our really learning that, you know, our body has such beautiful and innate wisdom. And when we tune into that, 
you know, that's where the gold is. But I don't think many of us get that information. I think a lot of us get information that our bodies aren't to be trusted. So Mm -hmm. I think it's really tricky. And that's why I think this is such an important topic. You know, my whole podcast is about intuition, but intuitive eating, I think for me has been one of those places that's been the last to develop. So Mm -hmm. tell me a little bit about what intuitive eating and what that means to you and what your training and your work is all about. Sure. Yeah. So, well, intuitive eating, the framework was developed by two dietitians uh, in the early 90s, Evelyn Triboli and Elise Raish. And so they originally developed the concept of intuitive eating or really more so gave a name to it because really what intuitive eating is, I think the easiest place to start in terms of explaining this is look at babies and small children. You know, babies, they cry when they're hungry, they eat, they stop once they're full. And then usually several hours later, the cycle happens again. Even young children like toddlers, again, assuming they have enough consistent access to food, they will eat when they're hungry, they will stop when they're full. And without this judgment of like, ooh, is this like too much carb? Or, oh, that was too much, I shouldn't have had that. Or, ooh, this is bad for me. Or, ooh, this is good for me. They just naturally and innately balance this out. I mean, I see this when my niece and nephew, they're almost four now and they're still very intuitive, but when they were two and really starting to eat a lot more, you know, some days they ate barely anything. And like other day I'd feed them all their favorite stuff. They wouldn't really eat. They'd be like, okay, I'm I'm ready. I'm done. I want to go play. And other days they would just eat so much. And this is what we also see in the research is that, you know, naturally over the course of a week or so, kids will balance out what they need without this external kind of input from parents or caregivers. So that's really, you know, we are all born with this innate intuitive connection to our body signals in knowing not just when to eat or what to eat, how much to eat, but also what to eat even. But unfortunately, like you mentioned, we, you know, those of us in the U.S. and in many parts of the uh, Western world live in a culture that's just normalized this diet mentality in the sense of normalized this body distrust of like, well, you can't trust your body. You have to listen to this external source, you know, this expert or this specific diet or something like this. And so all sorts of outside factors start to disrupt this connection that we have at birth. For some people that starts in the family of just like family narratives of their parents eating behaviors or, you know, comments on their food intake, or, you know, even things as benign as like, you know, you have to finish this before you can get up for uh, up to play, or you have to finish your whole meal before you have dessert. Like even these benign things that are just kind of, I mean, I even struggle with this with my niece and nephew, like, like, Oh no, 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 wait, don't say that to them. Like, let them just, you know, cause it's just these things that we all are just socialized with, let alone, like you said, the media messages and all of these other factors that are also putting all these external kind of diet mentality on us. Yeah, I think it starts so early. I remember with my own kids in playgroup and, you know, there was a parenting coach that was part of this playgroup and I was more of a fly on the wall than a question and asker. <laughs> but I remember, you know, so many questions just, you know, even right out of the gate, our kids were like one, maybe two years old about eating. Why won't they eat this? They eat that. You know, how often should I feed them? What should I feed them? You know, why is my child not eating? And even before that, right, with oftentimes bottle fed babies, but breastfed babies as well, we put them on feeding schedules, mm-hmm. right? Right out of the, the gate. It's not about when they're hungry. It's about when we choose to feed them. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. And yeah, you know, most of the time and, you know, oftentimes parents are, they're trying to do the best that they can and this is what they've been taught. And then this just kind of gets passed on and on and on, you know, down to, to kids. Yeah. And I find too, sometimes, and and we're going to talk about things like orthorexia in a minute, which I hope you'll define for us. But I think sometimes those kinds of beliefs that we have about what's a good food, what's a bad food, what's okay, what's not okay. And by the way, I know those things have changed a lot through the course of my lifetime. I remember a time when everything was like low fat and (laughs) You know, we would literally pour boiling hot water over our like ground meat to get all the fat out. (laughs) That was the thing I used to do when making like spaghetti sauce or tacos. And I'd look back and say, what was I thinking? To nowadays when I've had clients come in and, you know, maybe like a 10 year old come in and say, you know, my grandma told me I can't have a bagel. She said, don't have a bagel. You'll get fat if you had a bagel. And she's like, but Victoria, I like bagels. They taste really good. (laughs) And so, you know, how do you think those messages affect us as we're growing up and really like throughout the lifespan? Well, I think, you know, whether it's those family kind of messages or, you know, media messages or just experiences that we have like in our bodies and in relation to food specifically, that all just kind of drives more of this disconnect. And so we continue sort of getting this message of, you know, something is wrong with my body is often um, the case, or even if that's not directly put on a child, like this is almost all of my clients, even if their parent never said to them like, oh, you know, you need to watch what you're eating or you need to lose weight or whatever, just seeing their parents dieting or seeing other caregivers dieting and restricting foods and like using like good, bad words around foods, these messages just get internalized and it just really drives like a bigger and bigger wedge between us and this innate wisdom that we have until, you know, I think most adults honestly don't have this connection to their body for a variety of factors, but partially because they've been taught in a variety of, you know, overt ways, but also covert ways as well of just like, I can't trust my body. Like it's not to be trusted. So we just get further and further away from this intuitive, you know, nature. Yeah. I think that's a hundred percent true. And I remember my own journey. I remember my journey with pregnancy and I'm someone with an eating disorder background, full disclosure, a long time ago, but it was a thing. And still like, you know, a in development relationship with my body. But I, I remember when I was pregnant with my daughter. And so that was the first time, right? I'd always been pretty tiny. And when you get pregnant, you stop being tiny almost no matter what. Mm-hmm. And so I had, you know, I was really concerned. And this was a time too that all of a sudden it was very popular for stars. I think Demi Moore was pregnant. I can't remember who else, but stars to post naked pictures of them, mm-hmm. Madonna, did it all in the time that I was pregnant. They were all pregnant too, posting pictures of themselves pregnant. So now all of a sudden there was this idea that, you know, your, whatever the idealized body was, there was also now an idealized pregnant body. So -hmm. this was not good personally for my frame of mind. And I remember with my daughter being so careful and nervous about what I ate, what I put into my body after I had her being so careful, trying to like, you know, lose the weight, lose the weight. And the magical thing is my body knew exactly how many pounds it needed to gain and it lost the weight. You know, it was like when I finally stopped trying, I lost the weight. Mm -hmm. 
And with my son, I think because I'd had that experience of gaining and losing all the weight. And when I finally stepped out of the way and it took a while, recognizing my body knew exactly what she was doing. My son, I didn't stress. I ate what I wanted to eat. I did what I wanted to do on the way up and the way down. And it was such a nice, a more comfortable experience. And I gained the exact same amount of weight, mm-hmm. like to the pound, because my body knew. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, it sounds like you had that experience the first time around to be able to like build some trust in your your body. And then the second time around was, was easier, but it wasn't easy. I mean, I have to say I gained a lot of weight in my first trimester, not a lot, Mm -hmm. you know, you're supposed to gain three and a half. I gained seven, but again, I was in a place in my life where I was like, Oh my God, Oh my God. You know, I gained three pounds too many, you know, this is an Mm -hmm. emergency. And I was probably a little underweight to start with. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I went to my doctor and said, you know, it's my first trimester and I gained this weight. And without looking up off of his clipboard, the guy said, oh, you're eating too much. Mm. And my husband was so upset because he was thinking the doctor was going to, you know, say, hey, it's fine. Later on, he looked up and he goes, well, you don't look like someone will have trouble with weight gain in pregnancy, which again, mm-hmm. was like not, not super helpful. Yeah. Um, but we ended up switching practices because, yeah. you know, even without the knowledge I had now, I recognized like, you know, it wasn't helpful. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's the thing that we all have to remember is that we tend to, you know, and I'm a, I'm a health professional myself as a dietitian, but we, we tend to put health professionals on this pedestal of like, okay, they know best. And in reality, they have been raised and educated in a culture and a system that, you know, prizes certain size bodies over others for something that actually has nothing to do with health, but weight stigma and weight bias is so baked into our healthcare system and then our healthcare education system that, yeah, it's just so unfortunate. And then, you know, especially with your history of disordered eating or eating disorder, you know, to have someone, you know, a medical provider tell you that is just awful. Right. And I see it all the time. Uh, I see yeah. it. No, because of what I do, right? As a counselor, mm-hmm. I hear about it all the time. And I've sent clients to doctors thinking that they were good to have my clients be fat shamed or have my clients have other kinds of, you know, feedback that it was just so unhelpful. And again, I think it's really just that so many of us are so unconscious around this issue and we don't even realize how disordered our culture is mm-hmm. and how much we've internalized that disorder. Exactly. Exactly. We've internalized this as like, oh, it's a problem with me and my body. And in reality, it's a problem with society and these systems that have been set up, you know, hundreds of years ago. Yeah, exactly. So tell me a little bit about your story. How did you come to do what you do? So my story, I mean, my story to becoming a dietitian started in high school. And I guess even before that, when I was younger, I had I was lucky enough to be in a family where, I mean, I was in a thin body to begin with and then didn't receive many of these messages around food or dieting or body shaming. And I also played a lot of sports. So I was really active and just really never thought about what I ate at all until probably like the middle of high school. And so at that point I had gone through puberty and I went through like a little bit late. And then at the same time I had stopped playing basketball and now I did not know the statistic at the time, but most women will gain anywhere from 40 to 50 pounds in that range during puberty. And that's naturally like that's their body working how it's supposed to. So I started to gain that weight and I had maybe gained like 10 or 15 pounds. And again, in this like fat phobic culture that we live in, I panicked and 
I ended up going to Weight Watchers with my mom. That was the first diet that I did. And, you know, this was pre-apps and all of that. So it was like a little notebook where I wrote everything down. And that really like put the microscope on food for me. And then in tandem, I had also started working out at a gym and there was a trainer who I befriended who, you know, was also into different kind of diets. And then on top of that, you know, and really, you know, you mentioned orthorexia before that's really what started to happen to me. I mean, I was definitely restricting, but it became this thing of like, Ooh, you know, I was getting attention from classmates. Cause they, you know, they'd be like kind of teasing, like, Ooh, what's that rabbit food you're eating? Melissa? <laughs> Can you but like, I was, <laughs> I was getting attention for eating healthy. Can you share with the listeners what orthorexia is just in case they don't know? Sure, sure. So orthorexia basically means an obsession with kind of healthy eating. So not necessarily kind of the amount, although I often see that people are also restricting at the same time, but really like checking the ingredient lists and the labels and really like compulsion around that and like really concerned about what's in something. We often see people like cutting out different food groups and really looking like clean eating can kind of fall under that as well under orthorexia. Right. And just, you know, spending to the point where, you know, it takes up like so much time might keep you from social events. You feel like stressed when you're not sure what's in your food, different things like that. And I think, you know, for me that really, it was this kind of identity. I was being wrapped up in this identity of like, oh, she's the healthy one. Got it. Yeah. And then, you know, that was when I was like, Ooh, dietitian, this is something I can do for a career. So So, all tangled up in that identity of I'm the healthy one. I'm going to use that quote unquote health to help others be healthy too. Exactly. That's exactly where it came from. And a lot of dietitians have similar stories and eating disorders are very prevalent in the dietitian community and in dietetic students. But yeah, that's what, so I, you know, went off to college and majored in nutrition and actually majored in nutrition and exercise science. And yeah, so while I never developed a full-blown eating disorder, I definitely had a very disordered relationship to food for many years, you know, certainly throughout college and into my twenties, just to the point of, I was, would think so much about what I was going to eat next or what I had eaten or feeling guilty or like, okay, I can only have, you know, chocolate like X times, um, you know, this week or, oh, like I haven't worked out in X days and just like spending so much time and energy thinking about that and worrying about it or feeling guilty about it. And so that was, you know, kind of through my early twenties. And then I moved to New York city after I finished my dietetic internship And I was working in a a hospital setting. So I was working in the inpatient setting, like in the ICU actually. So actually, and felt very lucky to be surrounded by, it was big New York city hospital. And so there's a lot of, you know, 20 somethings on our staff. And it just so happened that all the dietitians like had a pretty naturally like healthy relationship to food. Wow. And so I know, which, you know, now that I know a lot of dietitians now, and there's a lot of us with, you know, disordered histories, but we all like loved food and just, you know, New York city. And I was like 24 in New York city and just, you know, exploring all these different cuisines. I come from a very small town in, in rural Connecticut. So this was, you know, to experience all these different cuisines and, right. and so, you know, honestly, and I actually, you know, 
never thought that I had an issue. Like I was never like, oh, I have a problem with food. If anything, I was like, oh, like my weight, you know, keeps going up and down kind of thing. Like, oh, I need to like think about it more. Like I never actually realized (laughs) that what I was doing was disordered. I love what you said because what you said, it's so potent, right? My weight's going up and down. So that means I'm not eating right rather than it's my disordered way of eating that's causing this phenomenon. Yes, exactly. Because it's just so normalized in our society. Like it's so normalized to be like, oh yeah, I got to get like back on the wagon and got to like do better this week. And like, just all of this is so normalized, but in reality, that's a form of, of disordered eating. Oh, for Um, sure. So, so yeah. So I feel, you know, throughout my twenties and again, like I have thin privilege, I'm in a smaller body to begin with. So that's certainly like, I didn't have, you know, it's much harder for people in larger bodies because, you know, yes, I had this internal disordered eating and like internal body image struggles, but I could walk out into the world and like the doctor's not going to tell me I need to lose weight when I go in there with like an earache or something, you know, right. when these are things that happen to people in larger bodies all the time. So I think, you know, certainly my thin privilege really helped my recovery because, um, you know, and just really being around people who did have a healthy relationship with food and it kind of naturally sort of happened. I mean, I have one really strong memory of, I was in my, probably my mid twenties and I was living with a few friends and one of my friends, her boyfriend lived in New Jersey at the time. And so he'd come in for the weekend and would stay with us and he like loved sweets. So he'd like, and we did too. So he would bring us like all this chocolate and all our favorite stuff and ice cream And then he'd leave it. He'd like leave on Monday and go back to New Jersey and leave all this stuff. And yes, like at first, because I was one of those people, you know, I was like, oh, no, no, I can't keep this in my house because I'll eat it. But what I now know is habituation happened to me over the course of over a few months of with Mark leaving this food there every weekend, I habituated it to it being there. And so it really like decrease the intensity of like having to have it because I knew it was always going to be there. And right. I remember, I don't remember like exact time frame, but I just remember opening up the freezer one night to get something for dinner and realizing that my favorite ice cream was in the freezer and had been there all week. And I hadn't even thought about it. So I think it just, it like, again, naturally sort of happened through a variety of different factors. That's magical. And so fortunate. There's so few people out there I think that have that healthy mindset and healthy Mm -hmm. approach to eating. I mean, you landed in the right place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I definitely feel very lucky with the people I was surrounded by for sure. Um, So yeah, it was kind of at the same time. So at that point I was still working at the hospital. So in my day job, I wasn't doing anything with kind of what people consider sort of a a dietitian does, but I was starting to transition out. So this was about six years ago. Now I left the hospital And so at this point I was doing, you know, what I called mindful eating. I was like, okay, yeah, I'm helping people, you know, connect to their body and connect to their feelings of hunger and fullness. But I was doing what I now know. One of my mentors calls this splinter assing, like, like fence sitting of just, I was on both sides. I was like, okay, tune into your hunger, but also eat this many vegetables or, but also this is the portion of XYZ food. So I did that for a couple of years, probably with my clients. Meanwhile, I was, you know, still just doing my own thing, like really developing more intuitive eating skills on my own, unbeknownst to me. Right. But I still felt like I was, you know, had to like recommend certain things and, you know, really like hand people food recommendations and meal plans and things like that. 
And then probably about four or five years ago, I stumbled upon a six-week intuitive eating course with Evelyn Triboli. Um, and I was like, oh, intuitive eating. I think that's, I think that's similar to mindful eating. This will probably be good to help me, you know, with my clients and brush up on some counseling work. And oh my goodness, my world was just blown from that first, that first webinar with her because she went into all the weight science. Intuitive eating is aligned with another approach called health at every size, meaning that you know, we, we don't look at weight as an indicator of health, like weight or BMI. We don't see those as good indicators of health. And she went into all this research about weight science and health at every size. And I was just, at this point, I'd been a dietitian for almost 10 years and I had never heard of this. And I was just sitting there thinking like, how have I missed this? How have I never been taught this? So and powerful. also, yeah, but also really like thinking too, like, okay, I've done a lot of harm, you know, with what I had been taught and what I was, you know, sharing with people. And it also at the same time clicked because then I looked at my own eating habits and my own kind of path that I just described. And I was like, oh yeah, I do intuitively eat now. Like that, it, like this makes so, so just made so much sense. I love that. And you're making me think, just in my own experience. So years ago, I, when I was getting my, my first PhD, I needed to work out at the gym in town that was more expensive, but closer to the office. And so I started teaching there because that way I got to use the gym for free. And I was like you, I'm, I'm in a smaller body and a particularly smaller body at that point in time, because I still had the end of, of some disordered eating, I didn't really have a very strong body. So, you know, I, I, I could lead the classes, but my fitness level was where it should be, but I was not the most fit person in the world. I mean, I was fit, I was healthy, but, and there was another woman who was teaching the same class that I was, and she was amazing, but she was in a little bit of a bigger body. And I remember people, you know, saying things and people like wanting to take my class because of how I looked. Mm-hmm. Or a teacher once saying to me, my daughter thinks you have like the best body. And you know, that's great. Cause you work hard and you, you know, you've earned it. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, no, I haven't, <laughs> you know, this is just yeah. luck. This is just genetics and a little bit of someone who's just getting over an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I am really enjoying this step aerobics thing to date myself, but like, I wasn't doing anything more than anyone else was. And yeah. it was like an eye-opening moment, but you know, people get those messages all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, totally. Totally. And it's and, just, yeah, all the time. <laughs> and fitness isn't your size. I have lots of friends and I know in my own journey, as I've aged, especially around menopause, you know, I've gained weight again. It's been mm-hmm. a real interesting experience, but in this latter half of my life where I have filled out a little bit, I'm actually stronger. And so my fitness, I think has improved. I was thinking about you know, what I could do in my thirties versus what I can do now. Mm -hmm. And I'm a lot stronger. And, and so, you know, it goes to show you that the idealized body is not even necessarily the healthiest body for the person who's wearing it. Totally. Totally. And I think that again, speaks to our culture is so what we call weight centric, meaning we tend to zero right in on the weight as an indicator of health, as an indicator of fitness, like you mentioned, when in reality that there's a very weak connection between weight and health. And it's actually, you know, there's an association, yes, but our health is about so much more than our weight. And you really can't tell anything about someone's health based on what they weigh or how big or small their body is. Yeah. 
and emotional health matters too. And yes. so if you are making yourself crazy to be a certain shape or size and putting a lot of stress on your body and yourself to maintain that, that I would imagine can also be harmful for your health at the end of the day. Oh my gosh. So much. So exactly. I love that you brought that up because I think, again, we tend to zero in on the physical health component when emotional health, you know, spiritual health is also so important. And yeah, and this is really, you know, this is the women I work with are, have gotten to the point where they're just like, okay, I don't love how I look. Like there's still part of me that wishes I could lose weight, but I'm seeing like how, much this is really interfering with my life and with my emotional health and often, you know, physical health too, you know, the yo-yo dieting and the yo-yo weight up and down is not good for our health either, but sure. You know, if the, what you're eating or your exercise kind of routine is causing more stress, then that's not great for our health. Right. And don't a lot of people think that the yo-yo dieting is actually the biggest factor in the obesity epidemic or one of them? Yeah. So, well, yeah. So, I mean, I think the, when we think about the rising kind of weights that we see in America, first of all, it's the, the quote unquote, I use quotes when I use the word obesity to, to indicate, cause it's a pathologizing term. It places okay. disease upon somebody. Um, so it's actually a very stigmatizing term. And there's a lot of research that shows that weight stigma that people experience um, actually impacts their health more than what they eat or uh. how much they exercise. So just to put that out there, when we're talking about the quote unquote obesity epidemic, first Thank of all, you. it's been, you're welcome. It's been, you know, those like obesity maps, they've been, there's a lot of things that we could say about that, but basically suffice to say that that's been a lot blown out of proportion. Yes, weights have gone up but also like heights have gone up. And when we do look at dieting, so actually dieting is one of the biggest predictors for weight gain. You know, there's a couple of very large review studies that show that the more diet someone has been on, the more they weigh. And yeah, you know, when we look into some of those like statistics more around diets, it's around, you know, they can work in the short term, but then in the two to five year time frame, 90 to 95% of people will regain the weight that they lost. And then about two thirds of people will gain back more than they lost. So they end up at this higher weight. And I don't know if you hear this from clients. I hear this all the time. They're like, I look back at photos of myself when I thought I was like so huge. And when I started dieting and like, oh my gosh, I look totally fine. Like I wish I could be right back at that place. So yes, you know, dieting does actually cause longer term weight gain in the vast majority of people. Yeah, no, I think that makes so much sense. So I wonder too, so I work with a lot of people in the holistic health community. And so a lot of the people that I work with will talk about, you know, certain foods like gluten or dairy or eating more vegetables or getting more antioxidants. And I'm kind of making some of this up, but not all Mm -hmm. of it. And they talk about it too. I, I work with some amazing dietitians that I do think are, they're not intuitive eating certified, but I'm not afraid to send clients to them that really understand and teach about that mind-body connection and how the foods that we eat can make, you know, a powerful difference in terms of our mental, physical, Mm -hmm. emotional health. How do you navigate that while still keeping it intuitive and healthy? Mm, Or do you? Yeah, I know. That's such a great question. I mean, I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions around intuitive eating is 
well, if I just listen to what my body wants, I will just eat cupcakes and cookies all day. Or, you know, if I listen to my intuition, they're going to tell me to have ice cream every night and all of these different things. And I think we have to take a step back and realize the reason you might feel that way is because there's some restriction present. Like you're restricting like those foods, cupcakes, cookies, ice cream for most people are labeled as like, oh, those aren't good or those are indulgent or I shouldn't have those that often. And in reality, you know, a big part of intuitive eating is around, yes, connecting to your body, but also reframing the different food rules and kind of inner critic voices that we have in our heads to look at food more as neutral. Because at that point, like, yes, certain foods do have more nutrients than others and certain foods do probably make your body feel better than others. But when it's approached, that decision of what to eat is approached from a place with with guilt or shame or restriction, it never works in the long run. That's why, you know, diets, and when I use the word diet, I'm also talking about like, oh, well, I'm going to try to eat more vegetables. I'm going to try to eat less sugar, even if it's not like a quote unquote official diet. These kinds of restrictions we put on ourselves, our body is wired for survival. So it's wired to actually push against those. So it might work for a little bit, but at some point your body actually senses starvation, even if you're not starving, right? Most of us who are food secure, even if we are dieting, we still have plenty of food around, but our bodies are wired from thousands of years ago. So they're wired to push us to be like, no, 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 no. There's starvation coming or there's starvation happening. And that's why after a certain amount of time of trying to do these things, then we end up binging on sugar and our cravings increase, or we get really, really hungry and just kind of quote, fall off the wagon. Um, And at this point, people think like, oh my gosh, this is my willpower. I'm so bad. I can't control myself. And in reality, no, like your body is working how it's supposed to. This is not your fault. This is the fault of the restriction. So intuitive eating is a health and well-being framework. So it definitely, you know, comes from this place of centering health, physical health, emotional health. But before you can really do that, you have to unwind all of these different things that you've been taught about food. Otherwise, when you're trying to make this decision of what to eat, that's what's going to be dictating it rather than your body. So, you know, when it comes to nutrition, you know, the intuitive eating is made up of 10 principles and the 10th principle is called gentle nutrition. And so nutrition is part of intuitive eating, you know, just to make sure that we address that misconception, but it's done so in a way that is instead of self-control or restriction, it's using food from a place of self-care. Like, okay, what sounds good to me right now? What am I hungry for? How does my body feel? So it does so in a way that's much more flexible based on your internal body cues. And there's this emphasis on, you know, both satisfaction as well as health. And so really when we approach it that way, then we can eat you know, oftentimes I say to my clients, you know, what you decide to eat, you know, the salad, let's just say, because everyone uses this example, the salad or the burger, it might be the same decision made from a diet mentality place or an intuitive eating place. It might be you eat the salad or eat the burger, but the intention behind that is totally different when you're coming from a place of like, Ooh, I like should get the salad. I shouldn't get the burger or the burger so much. I shouldn't have that. 
versus like, okay, you know what? Salad really sounds good. I haven't had many vegetables today. You know, yeah, that actually does sound good. Let me add, you know, some steak to it because I kind of do feel like some meat too. And just kind of coming from this place, this non-judgmental place and, and tuning into your body. Right. No, that's a beautiful, beautiful distinction. But I also imagine in practice, it's hard. You probably have to be really aware and mindful with yourself to start to really unpack that and mm. tune into, you know, why am I making the decisions that I'm making? And am I really learning on that deep level to listen to and trust my body? Yeah. Oh, exactly. I do not mean to make this sound like an easy process because it's not. It's it's hard and it is, it's unwinding. I mean, we go back to like childhood with my clients. Like we go back all the way to the beginning and start at the beginning. And, you know, cause that's where our relationship to food really starts to develop and to our bodies. So it does take a lot of time and it takes time to kind of get through that habituation period that I mentioned before. Some people call that the honeymoon period where, yeah, you might be eating ice cream every night or eating cupcakes several times a week or a client of mine, it was mac and cheese, but you have to go through that so you can get to the other side and your body trusts like, okay, when I want ice cream, she's going to let me have it. <laughs> right. And then once you get to that other side, um, the habituation piece of it, then you can really be like, okay, ice cream is on the table if I want it, but is that what sounds good right now? And I know this can sound really, really unrealistic, but I promise everyone gets to a point where they're like, actually, no, ice cream doesn't sound that good right now. Right. I actually no, don't want that. It's absolutely. I've had that experience myself. Yeah. But it takes time. So you mentioned when we were first chatting, and I love this, you talked about how food can be a powerful entry point into exploring more about ourselves, our beliefs, our values, what we want out of life. As we wrap up, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's so powerful and so true. Sure, sure. So yeah, you know, when I first got into this work, when I took that course on intuitive eating, I was like, okay, like I get this, this makes sense. And I was like, the work I'm going to be doing with people, it's going to be all about this relationship to food, like, i.e. being able to eat that burger and not feel guilty. But what I realized so quickly is that these kind of food behaviors that people present with, or they present with this, like, oh, like I'm really struggling with food or I'm struggling with my body image. It's not actually like a problem with them. And it's everything to do with society. And so wrapped up in this work I do with my clients is, and you know, when people are on this journey of, of intuitive eating and getting back in touch with their body, we have to unpack all of these other things, like all these other thoughts and beliefs and feelings we have around food, around body size, around weight, around worth. And I realized that it starts with the food. So the more people start to really trust themselves around food. So they start to listen to their body and make decisions on their intuition of like, okay, what sounds good to me right now to eat and going based on their body versus based on what society says you should eat or what this diet expert says you should eat. The more and more people learn to trust themselves, then they start to trust themselves in all different aspects of life. So it goes from this place of like, okay, what sounds good to me to eat to, okay, like, what do I want to wear today to like, what do I want out of life? Like it really opens this door to you know, I think probably what you talk about a lot in your <laughs> podcast of like all of this other like deep inner knowing. So, you know, it really can be this path forward towards a lot of growth and connection with yourself. I love that. All right, Alyssa, last question. I asked this to everybody. How do you experience your intuition? Mm, that's such a good question. 
I experience it. I would say to me, what comes to mind first is like the gut instinct. So the initial like instinctual response before like my brain starts thinking about it or before I start analyzing it um, or before I start worrying like what the other person wants to do or what they might think, just kind of that like immediate, like, I mean, I kind of like, I'm thinking about it. I like feel it almost like in my gut of just like, that's what I want to do, or that's what I want to eat or whatever the decision is. And then the other thing I would say is that whenever the should voice comes in, I'm always like, nope, that's not my intuition. (laughs) Yes. That is beautiful. That is so well put. It's a hundred percent. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing. I could keep talking to you all day. But we have to wrap up. So before we do, can you let listeners know where they can find you and how they can work with you? Sure. So best place to find me is my website, which is alyssarumsey.com. I'm also on Instagram at alyssarumseyrd. That's the platform I spend most of my time in addition to my website. And then I do have a team and we do do one-on-one client work. I also am coming out with a book called Unapologetic Eating that really walks people through the work and the process that I go through with my clients. So that could also be a good place to start as well. Oh, congratulations. I'm excited to getting my hands on that one. Alyssa, this has been so much fun. I hope our pals will cross again and we get to chat more. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope that you found joy, strength, inspiration, and clarity from today's episode. If you'd like to learn more and connect with an amazing group of like-minded souls, please join us over on Facebook in the Intuitive Connection Community Facebook group, where we explore these topics in deeper detail, have additional live teachings, and host Facebook Lives with our amazing guests. I hope to see you there. And of course, if you want to learn more about me or the work that I do, please check out my webpage, victoriashawintuitive.com. Thank you so much again and namaste. Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Farber and I'm an author, teacher, psychotherapist, and shamanic practitioner. On my podcast, Healing for Your Soul, I welcome some amazing guests and introduce you to some healing techniques like earth magic, working with nature and animals, and really getting to the heart of what is keeping you stuck. I want to help you deepen your spirituality and let go of blocks that are holding you back. Let me help you in this journey called life. Part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network. Subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode.